Tonight we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. And while I'm not particularly excited to teach about King Saul anymore, because it seems like we've been teaching about Saul for the last three, four weeks, I believe the Lord wants us to take another look at Saul's life in a different perspective at this time, because previously it was the people demanded to have a king. They rejected the Lord as their king, and they wanted an earthly king, and God gave them King Saul, who was the tallest man in the land, the most handsome man in the land, from the tribe of Benjamin, and he's their king. And so he's been the king for a couple years. His son Jonathan took the initiative to engage the Philistines in combat. That was back in chapter 13. And then in chapter 14, Jonathan again engaged the Philistines where he stepped out in faith with his armor bearer. That was our topical message last week. And so they've had combat, they've had war, they've been surrounded, they are surrounded by their enemies. And chapter 14 ended that there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And so the next few chapters really, and we study these Tuesday night verse by verse, they focus on Saul. He's still quite prevalent as well in 17 and 18, but we begin to get a shift toward King David who would replace him. But in chapter 15, we have this unpleasant but necessary story in the historical record of the reign of King Saul. So we'll pick it up in chapter 15, verse 1. Samuel the prophet also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant, nursing child, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Tilium, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Canaanites, Go depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they had come out of Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from the Amalekites, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, Alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatling, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. We read on now in verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I've set Saul as king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel arose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. For he's gone all around, passed by, and now gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And so Saul said, "Uh, Speak on. And so Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, Were you not head of the tribes of Israel? It did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel. Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go 
and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but I, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people... They took the plunder, the sheep and the oxen and the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams for rebellion as is the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as the iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And really the chapter goes on even more di- dialogue on these events and these circumstances surrounding this. Now the Amalekites is a reference to what happened about 400 years before when the Israelites came out of Egypt as a people of promise. And as they were leaving Egypt to become their own nation at Mount Sinai and then into the promised land, the Amalekites were a Bedouin people and they attacked the weak. They attacked the vulnerable. They attacked the rear guard of the, you know, 1.5 million people coming out, and they attacked them and they killed them. So like the physically maimed, the elderly, anyone vulnerable, they preyed on them and they attacked them. And God held them accountable for that, even as he also held Edom accountable for how they treated the Israelites and Moab. It is interesting to me that nations and ethnic people groups in the Old Testament were held accountable by God for their actions favorably or disfavorably, and how they treated his people of promise, the people of covenant, the nation of Israel. And remember with the nation of Israel that God had promised to Abraham, the father of all Jews, and to his descendants, that the Messiah who was promised to Adam when Adam fell in sin in the garden, that that Messiah, the second Adam, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, would come through these people of Abraham, the Jews. That promised Messiah is there in the book of Genesis through Noah and then ultimately the Jews through Abraham. And the Jewish people were entrusted with two things essentially for 2,000 years. From 2000 BC till the time of Christ, they were entrusted with the scriptures, the oracles of God, our origin, the origin of man, the universe, and all those things. And they were also entrusted with the fact that there was a promised redeemer that would come through them, particularly from the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, the descendant of Abraham, who would reign forever and would be the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, who would deliver humanity from sin, and we see from the ministry of Christ, from sin, the devil, and the power of the grave. And Jesus, of course, does all those things. So as the nations are going through the desert, they represent the stewards of God's word to humanity. They represent the Messiah coming to humanity In fact, all the promises of God from the dawn of creation are directed right through these people as they're coming through the desert. So when Amalek is coming up and attacking, it's a very evil thing, and they fell under judgment. The Amalekites were the perpetual enemies of Israel. We know that Saul did not destroy all the Amalekites. In fact, before David heard news that Saul was in fact killed on Mount Geboa with his son Jonathan, first chapter of 2 Samuel, It's an Amalekite that brings news to David that he actually took Saul's life, although most likely it was not him. He claimed it and brought the crown to David, thinking he'd be rewarded, and David had him struck down, thinking there'd be a reward. And though it was the Amalekite that brought the news that Saul was dead, which of course is ironic in light of this story, 
David himself had just come back from the battle against the Malachites when they took his family and his wealth and all of his mighty men's family and wealth from Ziglag, and he just fought the Malachites before that Amalekite brought that news. Centuries later, Haman, the Amalekite, tried to eradicate and exterminate the Jews with one of the most profound decrees ever that he deceived the king of Medo-Persia to make, the most powerful man in the world, that he created this ethnic cleansing, which is nothing new, particularly against the Jews, by the way, an ethnic cleansing against all ethnic Jewish people throughout the most powerful kingdom in the world, that on a certain day, you could go kill your Jewish neighbor and steal all their wealth. This is a story of the book of Esther. And it's the background by which Esther risked her life to save her people. Haman was an Amalekite. In fact, Haman was not just an Amalekite, he was a royal Amalekite. His title tells us he was an heir to the throne of the Amalekites. But the very gallow he built for Mordecai, he himself hung on. And King Herod the Great, being an Edomian, is often considered to be a descendant of the Amalekites as well, because it's the same region ethnically for the people. So King Herod, who tried to kill Jesus, the baby Jesus, there in the record for us in the Gospel of Matthew, is most likely also of Amalekite descendant as an Edomitian. The devil, for sure, has tried to stop God's plans of redemption through his son, Jesus Christ. All the promises in the Old Testament, the coming of Christ, the temptation of Christ, Christ going on the cross, the devil not understanding the plan of redemption that the Father had through the cross. The devil has worked mischief against the redemptive plan for humanity through his son, Jesus Christ, from the original fall in the garden when he tripped up Adam and Eve. It's also been said that the Amalekites are a type of the flesh, and many biblical teachers and scholars would point out similarities between the Amalekites, if they're the flesh, and our spirit, like the nation of Jews. Of course, this is uh, an analogy, if you will, or a type. But the Amalekites never go away. It's a perpetual war. There's never peace. And that's what it's like with our flesh. This treasure is in earthen vessels, and we're always at war with the flesh, the flesh and the spirit. They do war against each other. And if we don't completely crucify our flesh, it'll rise up and try and destroy the work of the spirit in our life. So that's a brief example of how people would compare the Amalekites to our flesh. I think there's validity to that. I'm not going to make a New Testament doctrine out of it, but I think it is certainly worth considering and taking to heart. So with that background and that context of understanding the Amalekites, and the Canaanites actually helped the nation of Israel, so they found favor and they were spared this battle of what happened with Saul. We come back to Saul, this first king of Israel. As we study the life of Saul... And even in the next chapter where God put David with Saul, which is incredible irony. The day the Spirit of God departed from Saul is the day the Spirit of God showed up with David in the palace. And that's a whole other study, and we'll get to that. But when you look at the life of Saul, and we've been talking about this, I cannot find one verse describing him or from his own words that would indicate anything other than in this man's worldview, it is all about Saul. Selfish people are their own gravitational pull. And they make everything revolve around them. It always revolves around them. They're the worst people to marry. And they're basically narcissistic, if you know what that means. But Saul, if you Google a narcissist, which is a self-absorbed person, it's a clinical term, you will find the descriptions, about 20 descriptions of what a narcissistic person is. It fits Saul to a T. 
His inability to think of anyone other than himself runs from start to finish in his life with us. Though God did say through Samuel, you were small in your own eyes, but it was always going to be about Saul. And unfortunately, we all know people who would say it's always about them. It might be a co-worker, it might be your neighbor, it might be a family member, a relative that you have to face a couple times a year at family gatherings. They could be an alcoholic, they could be a drug addict, they could just be dysfunctional because they're sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And it's all about them. Now, if you're a follower of Christ and you've been born of the Spirit, God gives you grace and wisdom to deal with that. But still, it doesn't mean it's not an agitation. But it's even more profound is when people call themselves Christians, quote scripture, talk about knowing the Lord, and even offers altars to the Lord, which Saul did. When it's all about them, in Jesus' name, that's just the worst. And it'll, it'll break your, if you let it, it'll break your desire to serve the Lord. It'll break your desire to serve in the local church, and it'll break your will to be a pastor. Because people who make it all about them they exist when you go to work at 8 a.m. on Monday morning, and they exist when you go to church at second service at 10 in the morning. They exist in both places. So really for me, my point tonight in, in teaching this text, as I feel led of the Lord, is not so much to focus so much about Saul and the Sauls we know, but more the danger of the Saul that I can see in the mirror. Because the potential for us to be narcissistic, self-absorbed, and self-willed, and all about us, is there every day. We have to fight this battle against our flesh and our pride, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, uh, and the pride of life. This treasure is in earthen vessels, the Holy Spirit, when we give our life to Christ and are born again. And we have to fight this Saul within us all, where we want it to be about us. And we want to go first, not last. But the grace in the kingdom is the servant of all. But we, we want we want to go first. It's in our nature before Christ, and it's still a, di- it's a dying thing that has to be crucified after Christ. If you look at books in the airports, the big airports, like say Atlanta, ATL, or whatever, especially like Denver, Fort Worth, DFW, where you transit, transit between flights, connector hubs, there's always lots of books. You will never find a book that says looking out for last place. But you'll find a book that says looking out for number one. When I bought my T-shirt in the 70s in Japan that had one Japanese symbol on it, it was number one, Ichiban. And that's the shirt I bought for Joy Brand when I was 19. I bought Ichiban, California kid, Ichiban. I wouldn't have been interested in a shirt that said number two, right? Yeah, it's, it's, in, it's in us. So as we look at this story of Saul, because it's a religious story, isn't it? Oh, there's talk about sacrificing things to the Lord. There's a prophet prophesying. There's a king saying, I did obey the Lord. Even the people that are blamed are still spiritual because they're going to offer sacrifices to the Lord. This thing is religious from top to bottom, from start to finish. This story is bookended with religion. And even when I cut off before it goes farther, Saul's like, just whatever you do, bless, bless me in front of the people. It's a religious story. It's a religious text. So for us, I think tonight, Saul was, God was giving Saul a second chance. It says in verse one, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the Lord. Uh, heed the voice of the Lord. Saul had already been rejected, but now here comes Samuel saying, hey, you get another chance. It's a second chance. 
Now, Jesus told Peter that we should forgive someone 490 times, seven times 70. So I like to think we get a lot of chances, and God is gracious. But it's interesting how with someone like David, who had a heart for the Lord, he finds mercy and grace all the time through his entire life. But as we get into the life of David, we'll see why he found mercy and grace. He didn't blame the other people. He did accept responsibilities for his sins and failures. Saul, on the other hand, was religious, always wanted to look good in front of the people, and it always was about Saul, whereas David said, I'll not give the Lord that which cost me nothing. David said, why are you punishing your people? Hold me accountable, but not your people, your sheep. And we see the contrast between the first king and the second king of Israel. And really, David finds grace after grace after grace, and he finds mercy after mercy after mercy. In fact, he says, I want to do something great for you, Lord. And the Lord says, I'm going to do something great for you. I'm going to build you an everlasting kingdom from your descendants. And he promises that Jesus, the Messiah, would come through him. It's almost paradoxical, and if you only looked on the surface, you'd think David was the loser and Saul was the winner by their outward actions. You'd think David was a carnal man, I mean, murder, adultery, and all that stuff, and Saul was the good man. Victory, building altars, public sacrifices, just like a prophet or a priest, but he's a king. But God does not look at the outward, but he looks at the heart, which is what was brought up in the next chapter when he anointed David to be the replacement king. But as we think about Saul, we need to think about how there's a danger within all of us in this room to be like Saul, religious and self-centered, self-absorbed, and make it all about us. And we just can't do that. And I'm reminded in this text on Tuesday and throughout this week and tonight that we just can't do that. God gives us second chances so we're broken and we go forward to be a better version of who we can be. He gives us 490 chances, if you will, to grow. Failure is inevitable. Growth is optional. And we want to get brokenness from our failures and our embarrassments, our shortcomings, and our defeats. But if we're like Saul, we'll never be able to look at the woman in the mirror, the man in the mirror, and accept responsibility for our failures and shortcomings. And we'll never truly grow. And I think I speak for all of us. When you get down to it, life is extremely short. And I want to grow daily in the Lord. I want to be more prepared for eternity tomorrow than I am today. Yes and amen, right? So the only way that's going to happen is if we can be more like David, a heart after God, than be like Saul, a self-absorbed orbit where it's all about him and the inability to be honest with himself in the mirror or the people around him that they're... That He's supposed to be a servant leader, not uh, authoritarian, totalitarian leader, which is what he was. So we're going to look at his life here and just get a couple simple things that we want to learn from, and we can see him quite clearly. But one, he was, above all else, he was self-willed and self-centered, which we've been talking about. In verse 7, it really jumps out at us. It says in uh, verse 7, he, uh, excuse me, verse 8, he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. See, He's self-willed. God said to wipe everything out. As Billy Graham used to say, Jesus is Lord of all or is not Lord at all. And if we make a peace treaty or a compromise with anything clearly contrary to the revealed word of God, it's never going to be a good ending. And there's a self-will that wants to crucify these things in our life, but not that thing. I want deliverance from weed and alcohol, but not lusting after women, right? Like those things, it works that way. Oh, I want deliverance from alcohol so my wife will take me back, but I'm going to still rip off my 
these people in business deals because I'm a greedy person. I make Zacchaeus look generous. See, some of us want deliverance from 90% of what's wrong in our life, but not 10%. And by the way, when I first went into ministry at Calvary Chapel Vista, I knew this to be with me, true, but I also found it to be true with the drug and alcohol ministry. Because there were so many people that had had backgrounds with coke or crystal meth and alcohol and all that stuff, and they'd be so sorry, and they would want deliverance from those things, but in the end, they wouldn't, many of them just, they weren't all in. And because they weren't all in, they'd fall right back to the sin. You got to be all in, or you're going to go back to sin. And even in the text, the Lord says he's turning back from following me, because he wasn't all in, so he became and walked in the sin. And Saul was religious, but he was self-willed. He had, it was very clear. Don't you like it when God gives a very simple instruction? That's one simple thing. Hey, here's your mission, here's your job. Everything is wiped out. So in case there's any confusion, let's do the question. How many things are supposed to be wiped out? 90%, 95, 99, 85, 50-50? No, everything. How lost can you get in everything? Now you might think, well, Saul was empathetic because he had to wipe out children. Children who become future Amalekite kings and try and destroy the Christ. Those kind of children. But that's God's business anyways, because he already said they're under judgment. So we think, well, maybe Saul was compassionate toward Agag the king. No, he wasn't. Because we're already told in the text he swooped down on the booty. He's a pirate. He's like a pirate. He's not, he's not empathetic. He doesn't have some humanitarian thing that somehow in his mind is like, well, maybe God's not fair. He's not thinking that way at all. He's ripping his people off for what he can get. And it's not that he doesn't want to see the people killed. He wants to display and show off the king he captured. And he wants to keep the plunder. Like Achan back in the book of Joshua. Hey, when it's the Lord's though, don't touch it. It's all the Lord's anyways. He's self-willed. Body of Christ. Joey looking in the mirror. The great thing that jumps out immediately in this story is self-willed and self-justified, therefore self-deceived and delusional. And while we might think of people that come to our mind, especially if you're older, you can't avoid these kind of people, it's not about them. It's about me and you not being this person. It says in verse 9, he spared the best livestock. Again, clear, absolute disobedience. He took Agag alive, alive, he spared the livestock. He did not perform what he was told to do with one basic instruction. But then in verse 13, he's delusional. He says, I have performed it. <laughs> oh, we know this, don't we? Oh. In 1999, I worked for Hobie Oceanside. It was actually, became surf fry by that time. The largest surf shop, retail surf shop in San Diego County. Still is. They opened up another shop that time down in Solana Beach. Bill and Richard Bernard, wonderful owners, love the Lord, good men. So I came back from Vermont and I had the comeback where I won the World Masters and all that with the ASP World Tour. And, and Bill gave me a job in the surf shop. A, re- a really good job. He loved the Lord. So he le- and it became a pastoral ministry in the surf shop. But he wanted me to do PR things with the youth out there, which of course you would do with the retail. You want to reach the kids. And so there's a junior high surf contest going on at Seaside Reef there in Cardiff. And he said, okay, your job today is go down there and you're going to do the PA. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be the hype man. You're going to hype up the new surf ride shop in Solana Beach. You're Joy Brand. Like, okay, like you're going to hype it up, pipe master, whatever, you know, and you can do that. 
Well, this is when I had to come back, and I'd won the World Masters. I was training for the Pipe Masters. I was doing the World Qualifying Tour. I'm like, well, that's what I got to do to get paid, but, you know, really, I'm pro surfer again at 37. Oh, whoop-de-doo. So, uh, anyways, the surf that day was firing. I mean, like, these surfers, it was a 10. It was a combo, peaks, perfect surf, and it was so good that day. And I had my board, and we had the photographers, and we went to Seaside Reef. There was a bunch of little junior high kids around, like, oh, surf contest. You know, it's bombing. They're all getting caught inside. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, Tory Pines is firing right now. So I'm like, hey, let's go do surf photos. So we did. We, we shot these photos, got these killer barrel shots. It was real, incredible surf. Man, Bill Bernard called me that night. He was furious. I did go back to the contest after surfing. I shook hands and kissed babies like a politician. Hey, kids, what's up? Keep ripping, little buddy. Ooh, rip it out, yeah, dude. Little forefin right there. Ooh, gonna win the pipe. The little 20 minute shake, you know, meet and greet kind of a thing. Bill Bernard called me furious. I mean, he was furious. Like the buddy buddy, you know, like finding Nemo, happy feelings gone. You know, like the buddy buddy Bro Shaka was gone. He was so mad. And he read me the riot act more than any boss ever did. But I'll never forget. He said, I sent you down there to do this. And I go, I did do this. Oh, I did. Well, then what's the water shots that are being submitted to me? Is that the bleeding of the cows, the buying of the sheep? And it was such a powerful lesson. I did what I wanted to do for surf ride that day. Not what Bill Bernard told me to do. It doesn't work like that in the real world, right? You get fired. The beauty of Christ is he rarely fires anybody, right? You know, 490 times, you know, that kind of a thing. But still, oh, we just can't. Bill was gracious with me even after that. But we just can't be that person. It's one thing to have Bill Bernard call you and read you the riot act for like, oh, but I did do what you told me to do. I got Agag here. and Well, you know, they, they said we should shoot photos. You know, it's like that's not what I told you to do. We just, we can't, it's one thing when a man does that to you and you read you the riot act or boss in 1999. It's quite another when the Lord does it in eternity before the throne room. I don't need anything before that rainbow throne bringing up what I said, self-willed. Oh, but I did serve you this way. No, you did what you wanted to do that way. You put a dove out there. You did this, you did that, your little Calvary thing, but you do what you wanted to do. I don't want to be that person. Do you want to be that person? Absolutely not. So, we have to grow and learn and know that it's not about our will, but his will. And we have to go back to Jesus in the garden saying, not my will, but thy will be done. And we're told of Jesus, he always did those things that pleased the Father. And he said at the most cruxable moment in human history, not my will. He said if there's any other way, if there's any other way, but not my will, thy will be done. And the glory of that prayer will be on display for us for all eternity for those that are redeemed in heaven in our glorified bodies. There's a beauty there that's coming our way to understand in another dimension the depths of that love, that prayer. But that, probably the most profound prayer in the Bible is not my will, but thy will be done. Prayed by Jesus the Son when going to the cross for our sins. It wasn't, he wasn't the center of the universe you and I were representing Barabbas being pardoned, 
and the thief on the cross finding grace in the last moment of time. So we want to be not self-willed or self-justified or delusional but we, and rebellious and stubborn in religious terms. We want to be sincere and we want to be real and we want to be sincerely obedient to do what God tells us to do clearly in his word and simply by his spirit as he's leading our life. So the positive, there's a negative, we all understand, but the positive is really not that we do what we want to do, which was his story, but we do what we know the Lord's calling us to do, which is the word of God, and as the Spirit's leading us, and that we're willing to do it. So if he says, turn around and go make that right, or turn around and go say something to that person, or just let that go and walk away, that's really where, you know, that's really where we, we see, is it about, is it, are we the center of the universe, or is Christ the center of the universe, and is he Lord of our life, and we're going to do what he tells us to do, because some things are really enjoyable to do. Some things are very difficult to do. And if we can accomplish one primary thing between now to the day of Christ Jesus is to be directed to seeking God's will and obeying it as opposed to being self-willed and just making it about us and playing church games and religious games in Jesus' name. The second thing we see about him is he exalted himself. Oh, my goodness. It says there in verse 12, that Saul went to Carmel and he set up a monument for himself. <laughs> he built a monument for himself. I mean, it's one thing if, if uh, you know, someone builds a monument for John Wayne and puts it in the airport after he's gone, right? Or they put you in the Walk of Fame because you actually did something up there in Hollywood. I mean, you won some Academy Awards or something. But, you know, the funniest thing is people that have monuments to themselves that didn't earn it. Like, in the last 30 years, we've seen so many, like, Nobel Peace Prizes or whatever given to people. For what? Like, for what? Like, you know, like, really? Like, how'd you earn that? And again, it's not about them. It's about us. So, if politicians and, and people of power want to give awards to themselves, that's their business. If people in a church want to build churches around themselves and their personality, a personality-driven church, that's their business as well. But there was no monuments built around Jesus. He was the servant of all. And it's interesting when you study church history, the people that had the most profound impact, when you study church history, at least for me, the ones I admire the most, they don't necessarily have a whole lot of fruit. I mean, Eric Little, the movie Traits of Fire, 1981 Academy Award winner, best picture. The story of Eric Little is true. I mean, he grew up as a, a missionary's kid in China. He's from Scotland. He eventually ran for England, you know, in the, in the Olympics and the Paris Games. He was going to be a full-time missionary. He became a full-time missionary. The king of England pressured him to run on Sunday. He did not want to run on Sunday. It was against his convictions. That was his convictions. You have convictions. I would feel at liberty to run on Sunday. Um, but I might have different convictions that maybe he wouldn't have, right? One man seems one day, another, another. Let each be convinced in their own mind is what the New Testament says. And it was his conviction that Sunday was a Sabbath, and it was holy and consecrated, and I'm sure that's something God's going to always honor. And he refused to run. And the king of England pressured him to run. Now listen. We're talking the king of England right after World War I. And he refused to. He was the favorite in the hundred. Instead, he qualified to the 200, which is a completely different race if you know track and field. 
And he won the gold in the 200, I believe, on a Tuesday. All's well that ends well for God and country and king, right? Famous story. He went to China, had nothing profound in his life. There was, he didn't, if you study life of Eric Little, it's not, nothing like Hudson Taylor or, or anything like that. Or John and Betty Stam, you know, like their, their testimony with how they were martyred uh, during the, uh, by the communists before World War II, kind of in that unstable time of the early 30s. But like Eric Little, there's nothing like, wow, like there's no monument to his ministry. There's no lasting thing like the you know, Inland China mission that Hudson Taylor still goes on through open, I don't know if it's open doors, it's one of those ministries. Still going on. But see, that guy was going to die at 40 anyways. He died of a, a brain tumor in a Japanese internment camp. And he died serving people. And in one of his bi- biographies, it talks about how he helped prostitutes because the Japanese rounded up all the uh, foreigners. So whether they're uh, Western harlots or Western missionaries, put them all together in these internment camps. And he, did sport, he created sports leagues for the kids to play sports. They did all kinds of sports because he was a rugby star as well. And he refereed kids, and, and he, he helped the harlots, the prostitutes to get along with the missionary wives and all this stuff. And he served, and he served, and he served, and he died of a brain tumor in a Japanese internment camp. And there's no monument to where he's buried. There's no monument to his life and his legacy in China. I don't even know where his gold medal is from the Paris Olympics. But that's the kind of person whose life truly is a monument to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's that's the person that I would admire. Or an Amy Carmichael who gave up the chance to be married and all these things to, to serve little girls who were in sex trafficking. There's nothing new under the sun. And took on evil men. She took on very evil men in protecting vulnerable little girls. And as a whole, she was attacked by the Western Church for her deep convictions in the Lord. Those are the people that will have crowns of glory in the kingdom. People that build their own monuments are legends in their own mind, and they mean nothing on the day of Christ Jesus or in eternity. And from the dust we came, the dust will return. And all the earthly greatness comes to nothing when we stand before the throne of God. So Saul's monument, listen, he literally built a monument to himself. And like, who does that? But I tell you, if you meditated for five minutes, you might think of some people and you might even think of yourself. We like monuments to ourselves. There was the fire in Carlsbad. When I lived with my friend Tom Garcia, my mom told me you got to grow up. I was a pro surface, so she kicked me out of the house. I like, gee, mom, that's one of those like Catholic mom son things. She kicked me out of the house. So I go live with Tom Garcia. There was a fire in the house. Top five most embarrassing moments of my life. The house is going up in flames. What do I save? My trophies. <laughs> my trophies. So the fireman putting the fire out, and I'm sitting in the front yard with all my trophies. And when the fire's all put out, the firemen are like, look at that. What an idiot. I'm like, California kid, man. That was profoundly, profoundly embarrassing. And there are people in Carlsbad that still remind me of that event 40 years later. That is why after I gave my life to Christ, 
For Christmas 1990, I gave all my trophies away to all my friends I grew up with in Carlsbad. So when I see Joe James, or I see Jim Palmer, or these different people I, went, I surfed with and grew up with, they, they, and I know which trophies I gave to some of them. Like Joe James has my OP Pro runner-up trophy. But then, you know, I, see, I know I'm still prideful because about two years ago, my brother told me he sold my Stubbies trophy. When I won the Stubbies in 1981, that was such a big deal. I gave it to my brother, and he sold it. You, you sold my Stubbies trophy? You know how hard it was to beat Greg Mungo at Lowers in 1981? Huh. But even worse yet, Murray Estes took my Brazil trophy this tall from my mom's house, took it to Hawaii with him without my permission, and then he shows up at Pipeline in 2000 because he lives on the North Shore. He says, oh, yeah, I threw your, your Brazil trophy away. Huh? That was the first win for a California ever on the World Surf Tour. You threw my Brazil trophy away? You think, well, no big deal. But then sometimes when you're flashing back at 61, you think, I'd like to have my Brazil trophy back. Because I'm trying to get a Donald Takayama board that's mine from 1979. It's one of my pipe boards from 79. All done. It's a great wall hanger. It's hard to find boards from 40 years ago, let alone one of your own. I remember that board. I got an email this last week. Hey, dude. I'm like, he's like, what can you trade? I'm like, I gave everything away. I got nothing. Tony Mata has my Pipe Masters jersey. I got a four-fin burn gave me from 84 when I won a truck. I just don't have much. Bar- but I'm like, oh, if I had all those things, like, and what? What? See, we love monuments. We love monuments. I'm wishing I still had those monuments so I could trade to another monument. A board that was mine in 1979 that I served Pipeline on. I said, would you take an autographed cover shot? <laughs> I have a few covers later. I don't know. I really want that board. My kids all want it in one of the Florida houses, you know, like hang that thing. Is like, yeah, yeah, whatever. It's one thing if your kids want a monument to you. It's quite another if you want a monument to yourself. There's no place for monuments. When I was in Virginia in 1992, I threw away everything I still had from my career. Sometimes I regret it. My pipe master's trunks from 78, the final with Dre Lopez. Headlines from the Rio Journal when I won Brazil, it's all gone. But I threw it all away. All of it was in a big box. And I just decided one day that man has to be dead. And whatever I have now is because someone gave it to me. Like, hey, dude, I got some old surf mag. I'm like, yeah, I threw all mine away. But that man had to die. To go forward in ministry, that man had to be dead. That, this is just, there's, no, there's no Joy Brown monument in the Calvary Chapel movement. There's no Joy Brown monument in the body of Christ. There's no you monument in the body of Christ. There's no you monument before the throne of God. We cast our crowns before the king. Saul just didn't get it. The guy built the, he built a monument. He, dis, he disobeyed the Lord, was delusional, has his victory. He's showcasing Agag, and he builds a monument. Don't be that woman, don't be that man, and definitely don't be that woman or that man in Jesus' name. Can I get a witness? Amen. No monuments. What's the opposite of that? It's just humility. Just being humble. God resisted proud, but he gives grace to the humble. David was humble. David made huge mistakes, but he received correction. When he got reproved by a prophet, he responded to it. When Saul got reproved by a prophet, he just said, that's not the way it is. I did obey the Lord. What a contrast between the two. No monuments. No monuments. 
And let's admire women and men whose lives are a testament of humility and serving humanity in Jesus' name. What the world esteems... Uh, I won't even go there. What the world esteems is not esteemed by the king. Humility, love, the servant of all. Like Jesus, when he washed the feet of the disciples, what you see me do, I've given you an example. And it's not necessarily washing people's feet, but it's taking that lowest place and serving other people unconditionally. And then finally, the third thing that he did is he blamed others, which is not uncommon. It's in the human experience. For in verse 15, he says, when, when Samuel said, no, well, then what's with the sheep I hear and the, the oxen? He said, ah, you know, it's all, ah, you know, uh, they, look at verse 15, his first words, they did it. <laughs> Remember, veggie tales, it's Laura's fault. She broke the plate. She said she had to demonstrate the apple chopper. That was a classic 90s veggie tales, one of the very first ones. And my kids can still all sing it. They know every word to it. That's the Lord's fault. She broke the plate. You know, it's like, they did it. Like, I mean, you're getting reproved by the prophet. And he's like, he didn't even like, well, you know, yeah, I, I should have, but it was me and it was me and them. No, it's just like, they did it. They did it. It's the first word out of his mouth. Deflecting blame. They did it. And then when it goes on again, a little bit longer, he does it again in verse 21. Verse 20 goes on. Ah, uh, yeah. I, I, I did, I, you know, I brought back Agag and, and the king, and, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, but the people, but the people, the people took the plunder. The people took the plunder. I didn't take the plunder. Samuel just said, you swooped in on the booty, the plunder. No, the people took the plunder. I didn't do it. Talk about a frustrating ministry. <laughs> Samuel the saw is like, ah. Oh. Well, it says he was up all night grieving over this. And if you're in ministry and in life in general, those nights you're up all night grieving over stuff like this for sure. So delusional. I have obeyed the voice, but the people, the people, the people. And so he's got the blame game going. It's easy to blame other people, but it's the worst thing possible. When I began to study coaches, sports coaches, in the early 2000s, one of the reasons I was so drawn to the great John Wooden from UCLA is in his pyramid of life and all these different things he had, uh, he was a God-fearing man too. One thing he never tolerated from himself or any of his athletes is excuses and blaming others. Never. Never. Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Gail Goodrich, Bill Walton, Sidney Wicks, all those great UCLA players, they all understood one thing from day one when he taught them how to put their socks on as a freshman. No excuses ever. Not for you, and you don't blame anyone else. And I remember reading that in the mid-2000s, right before I was offered to coach the U.S. surf team for the first time. And I made it a principle of coaching not to blame anyone but myself and not to allow kids to blame anyone, but to accept responsibility for themselves. And you know, for about 80% of the kids, it was a teaching lesson throughout their life. Some are still top in the world. Lakey Peterson, Chloe Andino, Connor Coffin, Sage Erickson, Courtney Conlog, those are all people I coach. They're all, they've all been world title contenders. And when they were kids at 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, I refused to let them put blame on anyone else for anything that happened or make excuses for what went wrong for them. I taught people to accept responsibility as I did my own children and as I learned myself to do in ministry, in life. 
The blame game is the worst thing ever. And I love it when I see a coach who covers the iniquity of his team and takes the blame for the team and says, that was, that's on me. You know, that's on me. Like even that team from New Jersey, they had that run in the uh, March Madness recently in the NCAA tournament. When that team lost in the great, the Elite Eight, the farthest any 15th seed ever went in the NCAA tournament, he said, oh, I didn't coach them up, right? It was, it's on me. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, just 100% taking the responsibility. That's, that's what, that's what we do in Jesus' name. We accept responsibility for ourselves, and we definitely don't blame other people. We accept responsibility for our mistakes, our shortcomings, because if we don't, we're never going to grow. If it's always someone else's fault, how are we ever going to grow? We're telling them to grow, but we need to look in the mirror and say, I need to grow. I need to grow. We need some self-confrontation and self-reflection before the Lord Jesus Christ in our shortcomings, in our failures. The funny thing about the blame game, too, is most people know, most people are, you know, most people are embarrassed when they see someone else blaming everybody else. You're kind of embarrassed, like, dude, this person, like, you're the only one that doesn't get it. When you're blaming other people, everyone, almost everyone can tell, like, you're way off balance, but you think you're right. It's, it's delusional. It's just better. People respect it when you say you're sorry and you accept responsibility. Wouldn't you agree with me? You're, if you make a big mistake at work, you're way more apt to keep your job if you own it, apologize for it, and seek counsel and direction and wisdom how to avoid doing that in the future so it doesn't happen again. Because you're teachable and you're moldable. And any, most bosses are going to respect that. Remember, we said Saul already got fired by the Lord. Then the Lord gave him a second chance. And the second chance with his job. He, 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 he does the blame game. The Lord could have rehired Saul, King Saul, a thousand times, and he would have been the same way. He never was going to get it. In fact, our closing thought is, he says, when the Lord reproves him through Samuel, he says, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. In other words, just to obey the Lord is better than some church sacrifice or some religious thing you do to make yourself feel good about yourself religiously. And he said, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as the iniquity of idolatry. And isn't it ironic? of all things, that Saul ends up with the witch at Endor. That is mind-bending. Because Saul ends up going to the witch at Endor. Why? Because he doesn't get a word from the Lord. And so since the Lord's not speaking to him, he goes to the witch at Endor. But the amazing thing about going to the witch at Endor, because this is so Saul, is he put out capital punishment death threats on all witches. See, that's what these people are like. You do it, I'll execute you, because I'm King Saul. If you're a witch, because she said, don't you know, Saul said, you know, it's death punishment if you're caught to be a sorcerer. And then it turns out it's him. That's what, when it's all about Saul, that's the way it is. You, you're judging jury of everyone else, and the very thing you're pointing your finger at them for, there's four fingers pointing back at you. And in the end, the irony of all ironies, the end of his life, the last 24 hours of his life, he's before a witch doing sorcery calling up Samuel from the dead with, who knows what that's all about? I don't even know. I, I have no idea. Well, maybe we'll figure it out when we get there in May. But that just shows you, if we're not going to obey the Lord, our sin is as the sin of witchcraft and sorcery, and we just might end up in a seance calling up the prophet from the grave, which is terrifying to think of something like that. So the positive, again, is to simply 
to, to have the to be obedient and to accept responsibility, to truly, like, so this is a, just really to accept responsibility, to accept responsibility when we've fallen, we've made mistakes, we've sinned, our shortcomings, by far the wisest, best thing we can do is accept responsibility for it, to own it, and grow from it. And the woman who does that, the man who does that, we're going to be sincere with ourselves. We're going to walk in humility. And we're going to grow and learn from our mistakes. And can I just say, isn't that what we all want to do? Like, why would you come to church on a Saturday night at 6 o'clock if you want to be as stubborn as Saul? We don't. We're here to, to be built up. So this, this application from Saul is not what I intended to teach this week after teaching Tuesday night, but I'm quite certain it's what I'm called to teach. So it's a, it's a good reminder to learn from his things and to be exhorted from his shortcomings and just say, hey, that's not me. I'm not going to be self-willed. I'm going to be all in and I'm going to serve the Lord with sincerity and I'm going to serve with humility and I'm going to accept reproof and I'm not going to blame someone else and I'm not going to make excuses because I want to grow and go forward and that's what we want to do. So the Lord help us to do that.